0: Dear friends, welcome to Christendom Conversations, broadcasting on Radio Christendom. Coming to you, as always, from our campus in the beautiful Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. I'm your host, Mark Rolina, Executive Vice President here at the college. Christendom Conversations strives to bring you the time-tested insights you need to help you live your Catholic life to the fullest. In each episode, we visit with a Christendom College professor or occasional outside guest to explore the wisdom found in our liberal arts education and our Catholic faith. We're very happy to have with us Dr. Christopher Lane. Dr. Lane is an Associate Professor in the Department of History at Christendom. He's also the Chairman of the History Department. Dr. Lane, welcome to the program. All right. Thank you, Mark. Let's begin with a prayer, invoking Our Lady for our conversation, for a growing awareness on all of our parts for God's vocational call in our lives. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus.
1: Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen.
0: Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom. Pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, Dr. Lane, we're very happy to have you on the show. Uh, it's great you, to be here. Yeah, I think you and I have known each other for, it's getting close to 25 years. Something <laughs> like years that, yeah. So obviously more we could talk about than we have time for. Um, scratch the surface here, and hopefully you'll be willing maybe to come on in a future episode on um, some other topics. Um I'd like to first start out with a little bit about your background, if that's all right. And you're a convert to the faith. Uh, I would just give us uh, that story: your childhood, your upbringing, leading you to the point of deciding, "Hey, I'm. I think Catholicism is where it's at for me."
1: Uh, yeah. So that I and mean, a lot of it was really in community with others in a very real way. Uh, so there's nothing I can take credit for. My brother went first. He went the year before I did, and and that's what really got me thinking. But the context uh, first for him, and then for me is that actually in our public high school, uh, there had been a pro-life group uh, started and uh, we had gotten involved in that and we noticed that um, it was vast majority of Catholics. Sure. It was also uh, in, in New York State, uh, Hudson River Valley, where culturally it was uh, certainly still a Catholic hmm. area in, in terms of you know, 70% of the people being nominal Catholics. But the uh, fervent pro-lifers uh, in our high school um, or coming from that Catholic background, mm. and that uh, led him and then uh, about a year later myself uh, to start thinking about, well, why is it that the Catholic Church um, is so strong on this? And, and that led us into thinking about the magisterium um, and, uh, and the, the nature of teaching authority and how that differed uh, from where we came from. So I, I uh, uh, grew up in the Episcopal Church, mm. and um, you know, for those who aren't familiar with the Episcopal Church, is is a very broad ten. Right. Um, so uh, the congregation I was uh, part of was neither very high church nor very low church. In <laughs> uh, very beautiful liturgy, um, the the level of of fervency of, of belief or, or even thinking about orthodoxy certainly varied within that that congregation. So it was not your your. High, high church, right. super smells and bells kind of context, um, but it, it was more kind of the mainstream mm-hmm. of the Episcopal Church, with, you know, which had had beauty, but um, you know maybe didn't have all the substance of historical Christianity uh, that some uh, congregations might have. Sure. So, um, so I, I think the the cognitive distance there uh, was enough to to get us thinking. And then, um, you know, since then, uh, you know, uh, it was 1997 for me, I was relatively young. I was, mm-hmm. uh, 16, um, and, uh, best decision I ever made.
0: Sure. Uh, when it's interesting, and, and maybe we can talk a little bit about that too. Just, um, that's jumping, coming to Christendom college after a recent conversion is jumping with both feet <laughs> in, into, you know, Catholic culture, uh, maybe save that for just a second. But, uh, you know, we have at least one other professor here, um, on faculty, Whose brother and he actually his twin brother kind of came in around the same time. Uh, Mark, Wench, I, I, what were those conversations like? Um, were you guys sort of staying up at night, just you know, going through all the intellectual information? Were you just spending time, uh, you know, with with other folks? And that was uh, how yeah. much of it was together? How much of it was sort yeah. of on your own track? I think
1: a lot of it was separate, but he was definitely the inspiration. Like, sure. I would not have even thought of it had he not sure. done it first. Um, but we had, had mutual friends, uh, in the high school actually connected with the pro-life mm-hmm. group and otherwise through Boy Scouts and other contexts, uh, that, uh, really, uh, were on fire with the faith and, and, um, could give good answers and, and helped us there. And then, uh, you know, in the rudimentary internet that existed then, mm-hmm. I, I, had certainly found some things there, uh, found some resources from the Knights of Columbus. So there, there are. Um, ways to find things. In addition to the local parish, of course, we're uh, right at the RCIA um, and a lot of great people there. So um, there, there really were a lot of uh, networks of people mm. and information available, for lack sure. of a better term.
0: Sure. Uh, and you're, you're connected with the ordinariate of the chair of St. Peter. Most people probably have no idea what that means. Um, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that. And it sounds like the, uh, the high Anglican... Expression of um, the the community you were a part of wasn't really wasn't really what you had in your background. So I mm-hmm. guess give us a sense of that transition. How did you connect in, in okay. that way? Okay. So and what uh, so is it? I qu- guess yeah. First, yeah. Quick, quick primer
1: on that. Uh, the <laughs> yeah. uh, the the full mouthful name is the personal ordinary of the chair of Saint Peter, yeah. um, and much of that is technical terms. So um, what it is effectively is a, a separate diocesan structure. Uh, uh, that um, is meant for people who want to participate in and preserve what uh, Pope Benedict XVI, when he established this, called the the Anglican patrimony, mm-hmm. uh, as having a role in the Catholic Church. And uh, it came from groups of Anglicans uh, seeking uh, to be admitted into full communion with Rome, uh, who affirmed the the fullness of the faith. And in fact, uh, some of the groups had had expressed that by by reading the entire catechism of the Catholic Church and saying, oh, that's our faith. Right. Um, we we want in. Um, and then, um, so Pope Benedict uh, kind of following on uh, earlier initiatives to uh, bring in um, elements of the Anglican patrimony and and have them in what was called the uh, the Anglican use uh, form of the liturgy, mm-hmm. um, you know, give this a more of a home uh, within the Church. So... That, why is it a personal ordinary? It's personal because it attaches to particular persons rather than, than geographical territory. Sure, so, so sure. being a member of this diocese um, attaches to particular persons, no matter where they are. And, and well, I'm, I'll, I'll just indulge myself and say the, the uh, juridical analogy to that uh, is actually the military ordinary. That's, it's sure. so there, there's a sort of canon law structure for people who are uh, within a separate diocese, even if they're in one geographical diocese, mm-hmm. there's a, also, an analogy, although a less perfect one, with the Eastern Rite mm. Catholics who right. also might be under a different jurisdiction. But all that legal stuff aside, that the purpose of that legal structure is um, to let the the best of the Anglican patrimony, not only you know since um, the Anglican schism, but but even you know from deeper medieval English Catholicism, to be preserved and and enriched uh, within the church and to, and. That means a form of the liturgy that is drawing on mm-hmm. the Book of Common Prayer and and other um, uh, Anglican liturgical traditions. More recently, uh, while being uh, fully in conformity with with the fullness of the faith, so it's a uh, um, there there are parishes and other communities that are are part of this. And then uh, for me individually, I, I decided to sort of change jurisdictions to help uh, support and and celebrate that and contribute to that as well. So um, uh, so that's yeah. a brief version, but I, I've definitely become deeply attached to mm-hmm. that Anglican patrimony, as, as Benedict called it, uh, in ways that were not available when I first came into full communion with the Church.
0: Well, and if folks haven't taken the time to even just look at the beauty of the prayers, I think in some ways, if the translations had, uh, <laughs> had looked anything like that when we were talking about, you know, uh, liturgical uh, matters uh, over the last several decades that people would have been much more at ease. It's, it's really just beautiful language and um, something I'm glad that it's being intentionally preserved. Well, so you've given us sort of a sense where you've, you've gone to the doorstep of Christendom College, uh, mm-hmm. and when you got here, did you know history was was an area you were interested in? Did it, Was it a developing um, I, uh, you know, or- it was
1: within the core curriculum. Certainly, yeah. um, it was part of my experience. But uh, I'll I'll confess that in my misspent youth, I was actually a theology major. Oh, okay. Right. So um, uh, it's something I I came to a love of history as a discipline uh, over time. But it, it's partly because most of what we do at, at Christendom, in the the undergraduate curriculum is historical in some way, sure. even if you're not studying history. And mm-hmm. so I remember most of my theology courses were were histories of theology. I mm-hmm. mean, you you deal with the deep theological concepts and the the logical and um, kind of speculative aspect, but you would go go through well, what, what's the um, what are some of the fathers saying about this? You know, what are some of the medieval saying about this? You'd, You'd have a stop with St. Thomas Aquinas in right. every course, right. and, and then, um, <laughs> yes. but then you, you'd go on, and and you'd see the development um, over time, right? So I, in philosophy, as a philosophy minor, uh, and in, in theology, we did that, and of course, I also had the core curriculum. Mm-hmm. The Literature core curriculum is historical, um, you know, follows a track uh, besides history itself. So it was always there. But what I realized as I was considering grad school after graduation. Uh, was um, that I, you know, the, theology is great, love it, um, but I became more and more attracted to understanding people living out mm-hmm. um, uh, the Christian life historically um, and other aspects of history as well. But that that understanding religious culture informs our understanding of all all these other disciplines. and how, how did it come to be that? Um, uh, this particular expression mm-hmm. of Catholic life is emphasized in one age or, or another. So um, it's lived out theology, as it were. Right. Right? And, right. and uh, you know, how did we get to think about um, how we preach this in this particular way? It's not the only way it could have been talked about, right? But, the, you know, this developed this way. How did people live it out? Did they live it out? Right. right? There, there's right. a, you know, kind of fascination with with the concrete and the real people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and the abstract is still fun, and I love it. But seeing, you know, in what ways has this been lived, in what ways has it been transmitted, carried on. Um, so I, I think, for me, the historical discipline gets you to, to uh, a point of having an empathy for real people, sure. if that makes sense. Absolutely. That there's a, um, you know, seeing how have people lived convictions out or even cultural influences, all, all sorts of ways people are influenced to do certain things. Why did it make sense to them, mm-hmm. right, is is in some ways one of the key questions of the historical discipline. And this lets you get outside yourself. You know, we have these very parochial um, understandings of how things are and, and should be because we're in one particular age and, and we have to step back from that and say, okay, this doesn't immediately make sense to me. Why did it make sense to mm-hmm. them to act this way? And even even people whose actions I, I would condemn, um, I still have to do that work of of, of thinking about that. Or I'd say, well, I think I think that you know, back to the abstract was a, kind of a theological wrong turn. Right. Um, right. But why did it make sense at that time to make that theological wrong turn? Right. So those are some of the things that uh, let me combine um, that interest in theology with an interest in in. Uh, Kind of real concrete persons mm-hmm. um, and the complexity of com- concrete persons,
0: right? Maybe, maybe this connects a little bit to your theological uh, background in, in getting your BA in theology here at Christendom. But um, do you think there's something about history with that sort of embedded storytelling, mm-hmm. um, you know, about a you know a, a people or a period of history that resonates with the human person? Is there something about us that we like to hear? The stories, um, Jesus spoken parables. I guess you know he's just the ultimate storyteller in some ways. Um, There's something in us that that's kind of a mode that we we naturally tend towards.
1: Yeah, I think absolutely. We we, we need narrative to make sense of mm-hmm. the world. We are, we are narrative making beings, and so um, the way our understanding of the past is is carried down is always a narrative, and mm-hmm. and and it always can be purified from. Um, you know the tendency to to want to make it too simplistic and there, there, there's always going to be a tension between you know telling the story simply and telling it with its uh, all its complexity and and we academic historians tend tend to want to keep the complexity in there right um, and and this is a tension between you know history and memory as well right this because uh, on the one hand right historians are the guardians of memory uh, as dr. Carroll uh, wrote but, but also the purifiers of memory that we 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 work to understand with the limited evidence we have. Well, how do how does how do the stories we tell fit with you know what we might find if we we scratch under the surface? And then how do we tell that story in a, an even more robust way mm-hmm. uh, once we we've done that hard intellectual work uh, with that that complexity? And and I think um, you know there, there are many analogies here people have have, have had. But for example, then one of the classic ones is is you know, without a narrative of the past, right? As as a culture, as a people, as as a human race, right? It's like amnesia. Like mm. the um, the person who has experienced amnesia, who has no stories of himself, right? Really has no identity, right? And so, right. Uh, so also on the macro scale, right? Any sense of who we are and what we should do, um, what are our obligations, are part of a larger story mm. or set of stories. And right. mm-hmm. so there, there's a lot in there, and there's been a, a lot of uh, interesting writing about this. Uh, among them, actually, uh, in our department, uh, Dr. Christopher Shannon co-wrote a book uh, with uh, Dr. Christopher Bloom called The Past as Pilgrimage. And a lot oh, of it's sure. actually about um, the historical discipline and faith in relation to, to narrative um, and, and how we tell stories. And mm-hmm. that, uh, that really is one of the purposes of, of this uh, craft of history, um, and it can be done poorly, and it can be done well. Right. Um, but but we, we need to make sense of the world with that eye on the past and the, that narrative, um, which can be continually clarified and mm-hmm. improved. But it uh, has, to, has to have um, some coherence mm-hmm. right, out of all the mass of, of the many things that have happened, that not everything is going to be included in the story. Um, And so the historians work off and is that selecting and choosing as well.
0: Right. Yeah. In some ways, I guess every era the storyteller has been sort of a revered figure, even, I mean, if you take the the time where oral tradition was really much more prominent and even now, I mean, what, what tends to be, you know, on the New York Times bestseller list is there are biographies. And as you say, well-written or not, um, we want to, we want to hear those things because it's kind of creates that identity. So it's very interesting. Christendom College was founded by an historian, you know, Dr. Carroll, you mentioned that already. Um, Not every Newman Guide school has a history department. I mean, give us a sense. Why is it important to have this discipline within our curriculum? What does it do for the other disciplines? What does it help us do um, as people who are seeking to be fully formed, create that habit of mind that allows us to then take on the challenges that we might encounter after we leave here?
1: All right. Absolutely. Sure. I. I. Uh, this is one of those topics I. I love to um, talk about. In the first day of class with my mm-hmm. freshmen, uh, every fall semester I teach history 101. I start with this question, is question of what is history, right? Which leads to a, a lot of interesting conversation. Mm-hmm. But then why history? Mm-hmm. Once you figure out what the study of the past is, why do we care about it? And there are lots of good reasons why. And and I think I'll identify. Two of them now, um, leaving aside the never start a land war in Asia. Um,
0: <laughs> we always appreciate of things. We always
1: appreciate uh, uh, Princess Bride, but um, no reference. So. Yeah, you know, one goes straight to Newman. Right? Um, Newman's concept of uh, the philosophical habit of mind—it's one of those really unwieldy phrases that he comes up with. Uh, but when you you read the idea of a university, one of the things you see is that primarily he means by that a very specific thing of knowing how each discipline relates to mm-hmm. the others, right? What are the questions and answers that each discipline can ask? Right? And each one can form your mind in different ways, mm-hmm. right? So in the strictest sense, the historical discipline, for example, can't answer the question of what I ought to do, right? So I, I need philosophy and ethics in particular Right um, to to answer questions of of ought right um what you know what is morally good what is morally bad now my my thinking about that is going to deeply influence how I think about history and my history should also deeply influence how I, I think about um, questions of ethics or philosophy right they they have to fit mm-hmm. with each other and then the philosophical habit of mind um, is in a sense the the kind of you know, bouncing off each other of the different disciplines, for lack of a a better word. And the more you form in in each different one and have this sense of separate disciplines, the better they can interrelate to one another. Um, And history in particular um, has that ability to look at the concrete question of what happened and why did it happen that way, Mm -hmm. right? And lets you reason about concrete particulars in a way that's different than, say, what you do in philosophy, which is actually... Primarily reasoning about um, abstract truths, like Mm -hmm. coming to truth through particulars certainly is part of that, right? But we're making claims about um, sometimes difficult to determine particular things of sometimes did it actually happen that Mm -hmm. way? We have evidence which leans one way or another that requires a kind of reasoning, um, which is not the same kind of thing you do in other disciplines that you have to work with um, sometimes probable arguments. And then, you deal with causation, right? Right. Why did it happen that way? And um, you deal, especially, I I love to hammer home to my students the multiplicity of causes, Mm -hmm. right? We're not just a one cause, one horse show, Mm -hmm. right? That, That you have to deal with individual choices. You have to deal with sort of the cultural milieu. You have to deal with economic and social factors, and strange and it, bedfellows. I mean, yeah, sometimes so people all, are aligning themselves, you know, for different reasons. Yeah, yeah. all, all yeah. sorts of reasons. Something happens yeah. one particular way, and and whenever someone says, "It's just because this that that happened," well, then then you're going to get interrogate that and say, "Well, well, let's look at all the factors." And it goes back to that question of why did it make sense to them? It's often that context. Mm-hmm. So there, there's all this kind of reasoning, contextualization, right? thinking. Um, avoiding anachronism that history alone can can do, but then helps you do your reasoning in all your, your other disciplines. Um, and kind of overlapping with that is by providing context right, to the other disciplines, you can do them better. So uh, one of my favorite examples is uh, Plato's Republic. Right. right. So Plato's Republic, and you can read... Um, you know, for timeless truths and you can get all sorts of timeless truths. Uh, but I think you impoverish your understanding of the text without putting it in a, its context. And what you find out is that Plato grew up in the midst of the Peloponnesian War. I mean, right. his, his, you know first three decades of his life, right, are basically tracking with the Peloponnesian War, right? And that formation profoundly affects how he thinks about, uh, the good life, uh, what ought to be done, the failure of states, um, good governance, bad governance, uh, virtue, vice, right? all, all of those things are formed by that experience, and they're formed in part by the experience of, of playing off of Sparta. Right? Mm-hmm. Lots of Athenians right. like to think with Sparta when they're mm-hmm. thinking about, well, what should we do? Right, so the, the imaginary you know, ideal state in the Republic is modeled somewhat on the real-life Sparta, Right and and yet he's not necessarily advocating that we want that idealized state, but it's it's a way of thinking through the those issues. Sure. Right sure. and and you can't get that nearly as fully right, without that historical context. You can't see, for instance, that um, early in the Republic when you have uh, a character named Polymarchus mentioned. Right now, your readers of that text, right. Um, in real life Athens, mm-hmm. know who the real life right. of <laughs> right. was. Yeah. And that real life Polymarchus was someone who was executed uh, in the first years after the Peloponnesian War. And so he's, he's this young man kind of in an, the earlier setting during the war mm-hmm. when the dialogue's taking place, right? But the you know, the real life when this was written, he was already dead. Yeah. Right? and And he as an interlocutor, in that conversation, then becomes a lot more poignant, and the, and the things he says mean more because mm-hmm. of the particular historical context.
0: Right, right. I mean, imagine someone making a, a charge of McCarthyism against somebody without having any idea about who the actual figure was. You know, mm-hmm. I read a dictionary definition, but uh, uh-huh. I'm missing all the background there. Um, so that gives a good a good segue, I think, to um, some of the scholarship you've you've done on Saint John Henry Newman. Um, you know, an important figure for us. I guess I'd love to hear a sense about how important you think he is, but people are also, I think, somewhat surprised that he had something to say about history. It's not, not the first thing you would think of, um, but we had a series of lectures here at Christendom uh, on the year of the canonization, and I, that point was really driven home, I think, in a number of those where he did have something to say. And um, if you could connect that, some of your thoughts on this to um, maybe the weaponization of history. Is there a way in which we could do history in such a way that we're actually doing damage uh, to a particular culture?
1: Oh, okay. Excellent. Yeah. There's yeah. a lot of good points there. So I'll, I'll, I'll see what, um, see what I can do. I'm focusing on, you know, first of all, his journey mm-hmm. is fundamentally a historical journey, right? right. That um, he be- became deeper and deeper, right? Uh, in history, as, as he later said, right? He said, to be deep in history is to cease to be a Protestant. And you don't want to say that in just a glib way, but, mm-hmm. but what he meant by it was that you know, he could not find in, in the early church what he previously thought he could find. Mm-hmm. Right? The, the deeper he went in, into questions of uh, how um, disputes were resolved in the early church, what the disputes were, all, all sorts of questions like that. Uh, reading deeply in the Church Fathers, he, he could not find the, the post-Reformation Uh, Christianity with which he was familiar, and he was already pulling away from that um, for some time before he uh, embraced uh, communion with Rome. Uh, But nevertheless, this uh, willingness to to follow the historical evidence um, in ways that made him very uncomfortable. Right. So there's Mm -hmm. that personal journey that he has. Um, Now, furthermore, I mean, he does write history as well. He he never, you know, considered himself an academic historian. Uh, but part of that that journey of thinking about the church fathers was a book called "The Arians of the Fourth Century," mm. and he was looking at the the Arian crisis, and um, it's very messy, right? And where where the majority of the bishops in in some regions, especially in the Greek East, uh, in some way were supporters of what's sometimes called semi-Arianism, um, and trying trying to hedge their bets between what eventually, um, you know. Uh, triumphs the, the kind of Nicene uh, doctrine of uh, Christology and the Trinity um, looking at the concrete particulars as we said at the beginning the lived out religious life in that church seeing its messiness but then being able to find out well what what really happened and why right and and for him that did have implications over time for how we should live now right um, so uh, he he also did work um, uh, he did some saints' lives, right? he, he did historical essays uh, regarding other times, um, and he was always interested in the practical, right, what, what does this mean for the life of the church, uh, but he was always also willing to say, here's where the evidence uh, led. He wasn't leading the evidence, he, w- he was following it, working with it, um, making judicious use of arguments about the past for his, his other concerns. Um, but not simply, you know, going in cherry picking things in, in a um, a way that made his arguments look good, like he, he was someone who could look at the whole, right? Mm-hmm. And that and he's an example of that philosophical mm-hmm. habit of mind where mm-hmm. he let the disciplines interrelate to one another, but also made the arguments well in each discipline.
0: Right, right. And you you have that great drama of him realizing, okay, I have to make the big step and I, you know, I may be alone, <laughs> you know, just that his own drama, uh, as, as a historical figure, it's just, um, that intellectual honesty, it's just, there's such a, such an example for all of us to really follow, follow the trail where it leads. Um, well, this is a, we want to get into vocation, make sure we have a little bit of chance to, to talk about that, but this is a, a good chance for us to take a quick break for some messages. We'll be right back with Dr. Christopher Lane on Christendom Conversations. As Catholics today, we are facing a culture that seeks to sweep away the roots
1: and reasons for our faith. All of us need help upholding our Catholic beliefs. That's why each week, Christendom College's Dr. Timothy O'Donnell opens the riches of Catholic education to all Catholics in his Free Principles video series. You can join Dr. O'Donnell for five minutes each week and learn from the best thinkers, hear amazing stories from history, and get spiritual tips to strengthen your Catholic faith. Sign up today at principlesforyourweek.com. That's principlesforyourweek.com.
0: And welcome back to Christendom Conversations, where we offer time-tested insights to help you live your Catholic life to the fullest. I'm Mark Rolina, here with Dr. Chris Lane, Associate Professor of History at Christendom College. So, took a little break. Coming back, you have spent a lot of time considering uh, this concept of vocation, a major area of scholarship for you. So, and recently published a book entitled Callings and Consequences, The Making of Vocational Culture in Early Modern France. You can find a link to it on press.christenom.edu. So give us a, just a sense about what is the book about and what were you looking to contribute by the, by the publishing, exploring this area for for all of our benefit?
1: Yeah, uh, absolutely. This was um, stemming from my research uh, in uh, uh, from my doctoral dissertation. So it started then, um, but really started beforehand. Right? I, I've been thinking about this as a potential research topic for some time, and, it, and it's a real example of that that religious culture, that living out of um, Catholic life, and what did it mean in particular ages. So, on the one hand, you can start from the end point, right? In, mm-hmm. in the present day, right, we have these conceptions about vocational discernment, right, and how that's supposed to happen and what it means, and and I think for me, the consequences is one of the big pieces, mm-hmm. right? You know, uh, you'll sometimes hear in the sermons, right, that, you know, if you don't get your vocation right, right, God has one plan for you, um, bad things will happen, right? Mm-hmm. What those bad things are will, will vary um, depending on who's talking about it, uh, but it's certainly going to involve some kind of unhappiness and, and uh, all sorts of things of, of, of that sort, right? So um, in the midst of, of sort of feeling around for academic topics, I started to find that sort of talk first emerging, right, really um, in the 17th century or okay. so. I, I, it, there are precedents before that. You can, you can find um, you know, different uh, sermons and, and mm-hmm. writings of medieval figures and, and that sort of thing, but a kind of fully formed, here's how you you, discern what God is calling you to, to which state of life is really the more technical term, right? The choice of a state of life, but the term vocation is used uh, a whole lot. And that's when we first start hearing uh, even a, a very explicit notion that um, one might have a calling to marriage. So the, right. and, and some research I did early on in graduate studies kind of led me to, to notice that as well, like marriage uh, as the, you know, end point of mm-hmm. a vocation right? That God calls to marriage, but it's in this wider context of what I sometimes like to call vocational discernment for dummies kind of <laughs> literature, right? that That's when you first get these very systematic treatises, sermons, uh, et cetera, on here are the things you should be doing in order to come to know God's call. Um, and if you do this, you might get it right. There are all these pitfalls that could still lead you to get it wrong, Um, And if you do enter a state of life other than the one to which you're called, uh, certainly in that time there was a lot of talk about how you wouldn't receive the graces um, needed to fulfill the duties of your state of life and you'd probably end up damned. So um, that's one kind of consequence. Another kind of consequence is the unhappiness piece, and that was definitely Mm. in there. Um, And then the communal consequences. Some of these writers, and and I'm looking particularly at French writers in the 17th century, Uh, But it was wider than that. But I think that it's sort of an epicenter of of, um, spiritual writing going on in 17th century France. Um, Another consequence was communal. And Mm. this is part of a wider phenomenon in um, what we call the Catholic Reformation era, which extends uh, before even the rise of Protestantism through that, um, through the Council of Trent, through the 17th century. It's all part of the Catholic Reformation Mm. or what we sometimes call early modern Catholicism. A key conviction about church reform was that it depended on individual reform. And now here you add in another principle that in order to get individual reform right, individual piety and holiness, people have to be in the right state of life to which God called them. Um, So as I say it, you can probably tell I have a a little bit of a critique of that tradition um, and and I, I do. And in the book, it's, it's less over right, because the, the book is, you know, me acting historian saying what happened and why, making mm-hmm. arguments about why it ended up that way. Um, but I, I, I will admit, I, I think there are some theological wrong turns there that are part of uh, wider aspects of the 17th century milieu, not only in France, but especially in France uh, with the rise of Jansenism mm-hmm. um, and more broadly rigorism, because not all rigorism is Jansenism, uh, although all Jansenism is rigorism. Um, so <laughs> yes. th- there are these big concerns and these very well-meaning writers teaching youth, right, a, um, what I think is a very anxiety inducing understanding mm-hmm. of how vocation works. And, and maybe the kind of usefulness of that 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 I see is I, I think some of those approaches remain with us. you know, if, if less often someone will tell you, well, you don't get your vocation right, God won't give you the graces you need to fulfill your mm-hmm. state, and you'll probably be damned. Still, that sort of your happiness depends on getting this right. And I think there are some certain ways in which it's an expression of other aspects of modernity, where there's a maybe an excessive interiorization mm-hmm. of things, where there's a lot of like, internal um, navel-gazing mm-hmm. uh, about what's going to make me happy, um, rather than kind of conforming to a world of unchosen obligations, right? That um, that in in reality, you, you know, um, you might not in the seventeenth century or later actually be making some concrete choice that leads you to one state of life or another. And and again, when they say state of life, they mean religious life, uh, the clerical state or the priesthood uh, or marriage, right? They're right. Using, using that that term. Um, occasionally thinking about particular profession within the lay state, mm-hmm. but more often um, the more general states of life as, as the object of, of what you're called to. So um, uh, so I think there are some pathologies in how we think about vocation that still include that, that very um, anxiety-ridden approach. And uh, it's something that that actually hasn't been sort of officially taught at a magisterial level, but right. people imbibe it as, you know, because it's a real part of, of the tradition. I mean, this is, there's a historical process mm-hmm. right, by which this becomes one of the ways we think about vocation. Um, and they think this is what the Church teaches, and, and that, again, if I get it wrong, right, um, I'm going to get smitten. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. God will send his smite button because, you know, <laughs> I was supposed to be a priest, um, and I got married, or I was supposed to be married, um, and I became a priest, uh, whereas there are some some more nuanced understandings of maybe what is the relation of God's will, right to those particular choices that individuals make, and it's hard work to figure that out, and I certainly haven't figured it out. Right. Um, and and the more I study it, the the more I'm clear on one conviction, um, that. You know, I'll never be able to resolve all the tensions that, that I can see of, of things you, you'd want mm-hmm. by, uh, to all work together. And maybe that's part of the, the mystery of, you know, um, God's will and, and our individual actions. Um, and one thing I say to my students, I, I teach a very puzzlingly entitled course, History and Theology of Vocation. Um, but one of the things I say on the, the first day of that class so I, I show them um, an image, which I have in, in my office of, as well, of an uh, Ego Montoya to go back ah, to yes. um, <laughs> uh, the Princess Bride, yeah. and with a little caption: "Vocation." You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. <laughs>
0: right, right. Yes. Well, it's good. I so much to unpack there, and and you know, you may feel like in some ways, um, some of what I'm going to ask about is is more in the realm of what a theologian ought to opine on, but. I'm going to go for it anyway. I mean, I'm certainly hopeful that, you know, God is the hound of heaven and whatever choices I'm making up to, to the last day of my life, there's still a chance for me to to get to the right place. But there isn't you you isn't there still some consequence, I guess, to a, a life of poor choices? I know we're talking about uh, a state in life discernment. Um, and I, I can see how, especially for a convert, for instance, if I, let's say I come to the faith somewhat later in life, well, I've obviously made a decision that's fundamental to me. If this was, if this was the theology I was coming up against, you know, you know, is there any hope for me? That would be that would be a very, uh, I think, difficult thing to encounter. But we do have folks that are kind of in this um, dynamic, and I, I spoke with another professor too about just that sense of not knowing who we are, what we're made for. You know, this anthropo- anthropological reality we've got, people aren't seeing what what is actually out there. So if I don't get that isn't there a real consequence I guess to choices that you know I I'm, I'm making them and obviously they're having a vocational impact on me um you know what what is how do those things come up against each other I guess mm-hmm. is there is there a thought you have on that I just you know you've, you you got to say there's still real teeth to to choosing the right path and
1: mm-hmm. um yeah absolutely well and and I think one of the key distinctions um and you can get this in many places mm-hmm. uh, from the early church, but probably uh, more explicitly in medieval theologians like St. Thomas Aquinas, um, and then actually St. Francis de Sales deals with this as well, is, is keeping alive the distinction between precepts or commands and counsels. Right. Right. So, you know, that which is commanded, right, if you violate it, it's it's sinful, right? Um, mm-hmm. Simply speaking, you know, it's a good working definition of a precept, right? It, you violate it, it's wrong. Right. Council is that what you're essentially invited to, right? And and St. Thomas Aquinas, even though he's he's very strong, he wants to recruit everyone to religious life. Mm-hmm. Right? If you read him on this, it's it's one of the few times he waxes eloquent. It's like, why are you waiting to become a Dominican? Right? <laughs> yes. uh, but um, what you know what he also says right, is it's very clear. It's never sinful not to take up a council, mm-hmm. right? Um, something that's in, invited. And maybe another way to think about that is that choices among goods are fundamentally different from choices mm-hmm. between um, that which is good and that which is evil. And I, and I think what ends up happening in in that more rigorous vocational tradition um, is that there's a conflation mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. counsels and commands. Now, that still leaves you with the question, which I think is implicit in your question of, well, isn't there still a way God might will someone to end up in a particular place, a particular state of life, or, or even other things we might call vocational-type choices... Right. That there, you know, there's a even more than providence, like that. There's a there's a grace-led um, kind of way of going about that, and 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 I think um, certainly there is, and that, but keep in that the question of well, you know, God might give you the faculties to make choices among goods that are going to involve trade-offs, like right. that. That you know, choosing one good is meaning choosing not these other things. Right and vice versa, um, and that's going to affect the living out of life. That's going to affect identity. That's going to affect all sorts of things. But I think you can do that in a way that that's not necessarily God has had this secret thing He's got for you. He's yeah. not telling you, but if you do all the right work, you'll right. figure it out, mm-hmm. right? And then you'll be happy, and you right. won't otherwise. Yeah. Right? And right. I think that that um, I think a more Salesian approach, right? Saint Francis de Sales. Um, when he talks about vocational dis- discernment in the treatise on the love of God, mm-hmm. right, it, there's a lot of "don't sweat it," <laughs> right? Uh, right. Um, and I think it's because he has this very strong um, conviction about the gentleness of God. Right? And there are other thinkers you can go to where you can find, you know, a simultaneous notion that yes, God might lead you to a particular place, and and that you know even your happiness might be more in that, and that the expression of your love of God might mm-hmm. be more in that, but it's you know making that into a sin for f- right. failing to do that. Right, that that's where um, I might argue that the dysfunction comes in. Right, mm. and and still, right, that you know you pull one lever, right, yeah, and it and it makes another aspect of the solution more difficult. So you know I don't want to abandon the notion that God has a particular will, the state of life uh, of individuals, but I'd like to keep that alongside of his his gentleness, his love, his Giving of gifts of grace mm-hmm. um, in different states of life as well. Right? So there, there's a, yeah. yeah. So I mean, this is one of those easy places. Easy to become I, neurotic if you're not yeah,
0: balanced about that. You, you mentioned Saint Francis of Sales. Are there other spiritual writers who have that healthy balance that you would point? You know, if there's there might be somebody even listening to this right now that they're they're in that discernment mode or they're maybe. Feeling the weight of the decision, say, okay, this is a person you could go to to yeah. feel some comfort and also get some direction. Yeah,
1: well, there, yeah, a couple places I, I'd point out. One, one very early church example, um, St. John Cashin, who's mm-hmm. uh, often unsung, but he, he's actually one of the most important sources for St. Thomas Aquinas on on lots of things. And you you don't notice it mm-hmm. uh, because when he quotes Cashin, he's usually quoting, um, uh, uh, someone in a dialogue that Cashin wrote. okay. Right? Um, mm-hmm. But he has an interesting uh, little bit uh, in the text called the conferences on the three ways of vocation. And what what I think is consoling about that little text is that, you know, among the ways of vocation, um, there's certainly direct call from God, there's call through others. and mm-hmm. and the the third, way is through some calamity or bad things are happening and you sort of end up somewhere. And he gives the example of St. Moses the Black, right? mm. Abba Moses, who was on the run from a murder charge and took refuge with some monks and ended up being one of the holiest monks no. uh, of the, the early Desert Fathers, um, who was kind of the rock star of, uh, of humility. Right? And, and you look at sayings of Abba Moses and you, and you find things like that. So that, that's one source, but you have to do some work to connect the dots there. Um, but later on, I, I I would put Newman in there, and this is where I, I I would argue that Newman sometimes gets misused. He he never writes a systematic how to discern a state of no. life treatise, nothing like that. So you have to kind of pick and choose. But there's a, a one meditation on vocation that mm. he has, and the quotation people hear is, like, God has um, set me. I'm getting not exactly right, but for some definite service, right? He set before me some definite service." But what people sometimes fail to notice is the next step in the text, which is, I may not know it in this life. Right? I ask not. I ask not to see, not to know. Hmm. Um, right? Um, and and it's actually not about figuring it all out, yeah. but it's it's about um, as his hymn, Lead Kindly Light, says, taking the next step. Yeah. Um, and then maybe the third text I I would point to, um, again, besides St. Francis de Sales, who I think is important here, uh, is. Uh, 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 Thomas Merton, and I know you know Merton is a complex figure, right? Uh, but he has a very interesting uh, essay in his book *No Man Is an Island*, uh, and the essay is just called *Vocation*. And he's trying to do uh, kind of a systematic understanding of vocational discernment. And I think he has some insights there uh, that that are very good. Um, where um, he's actually following on one of the few uh, magisterial statements made about vocational discernment. Uh, uh, which was a there was a dispute which we could get into if we have time, but uh, called the Lahiton uh, mm. affair from the early 20th century. Um, but one of the things Merton ends up saying, kind of implicitly, I think, drawing on that, is uh, that less important than attraction to a state of life is actually aptitude in, uh. in terms of perseverance in a state of life. Um, so there's something a lot more concrete and less over-interiorized. Mm-hmm. But he still wants an interior aspect of that. So he does talk about how vocation is the, um, the union of two loves, God's love and, and our love. So he, he's, he's working with the tensions there, and I don't think he resolves them all. Um, but he, you know, he's somebody who's thought deeply about what does it mean for God to desire something of an individual. Mm. And he had you know, his own story. It was a very interesting, complex story in, in his, his book, The Seven Story Mountain, which is um, the second half of it is all the vocation story. You, know, you get the first half, you get the conversion, and the second half is, is the vocation, where he ends up as a contemplative uh, Trappist monk.
0: So maybe just one last question, I'm quickly running out of time, and the time does fly. Uh, you know, I think it's safe to say maybe there's a, there's a crisis of vocation, um, even with some of the... Um, you're pointing to the unhealthy neuroses we might have around, um, the concept, e- even for those who are actively trying to do, there, obviously there are people who, who don't, um, even ask the questions, right? So what do we do? Maybe just a couple of thoughts you might have. What do we do to kind of reclaim that sense of, of vocation in addition to buying your book? Um, what can, what can we do and, and what can the past help us figure out
1: about, you know, the, the right mode of, of, of asking the right questions, I guess? Yeah. Um, well, I, I think, you know, for, for one thing, um, if you look at the whole kind of history of how people entered into mm-hmm. states of life, right, um, I'm going to harp on that again. It wasn't um, always this interior right. deliberative process, um, but it did involve um, when there was a choice choosing concrete goods. And I, and I think maybe making ourselves more alive to um, the goods of the different states of life in ways that are not just like the recruitment pitch right. and, and i and i know that you know vocation directors of dioceses and religious orders are are they're sensitive to this they you know they they know it's you know discernment and not recruitment but it, you know it's it's hard to do that job right it's very hard to do that job and i don't know if we figured out a way in which to talk about Vocation, where we're still not primarily talking about recruitment Mm -hmm. to religious life in the priesthood, and like that, the mind still goes there, even though we have more robust notions of of lay vocation uh, in the present day. Um, And and so, you know, there is a real need, right, to to have those those bodies, right, in in those institutional realities. The but better said, you know, the communions and communities Mm -hmm. of religious life um, diocesan priesthood and, and other contexts. Um, and you know, we haven't yet figured out how to entice, right. Without, um, getting people to think of bad consequences if you get it wrong. And, yeah, sure. and I think, you know, maybe working on that right more. And, and I know, I'm sure there are people who thought about that more that I'm I'm not aware of mm-hmm. uh, cuz I'm not my pulse isn't necessarily on uh right I don't have the pulse of that uh, certainly in in the fullest sense of the people who are down in the trenches mm-hmm. uh, with pastoral care uh, but there there's a way in which you know you know how can we get people to to see that uh, and young people in particular it's, it's going to be okay mm-hmm. first of all right Un- unless you really don't have aptitude for one state of life or another right? graces come with them right sure. Marriage gives sacramental grace. Holy orders give sacramental mm-hmm. grace. And religious life, um, you know, in a, in a different way, not not in a directly sacramental way, right, um, is a is a means of holiness in, in a special way. So that uh, rather than the notion that, well, there are these graces set aside, if you get it wrong, you don't get those graces, all of these ways of life are means of the universal vocation to holiness.
0: Yeah. Sure, sure. Yeah, it's a good analogy even to this sort of disembodied reality that we're seeing, you know, as the the topic du jour, um, that sense that okay, I'm, I'm stuck in the wrong. Mm-hmm. I'm stuck in the wrong vocation, mm-hmm. rather than sort of saying, how do I make happiness out of the struggles that it, you know every vocation yeah. has something, right? Yeah, so, and, and yeah. absolutely. All yeah. you know,
1: and the the temptation to use that idea that well, if you get it wrong, you'll be unhappy. That yeah. if I have any unhappiness or any difficulties, it must be because I'm in the wrong place. Yeah. Rather, God's grace is ab- abundant yeah. and and ready and available and we never deserve it, and it just, uh, you know, wherever we are, it comes.
0: Yeah, well, that's a that's a beautiful, hopeful way to, to end our time, and unfortunately our time is at an end. Dr. Lane, I appreciate you being with us, and I know we leave on the table some topics um, that hopefully we can return to in the future if that's all right. All right,
1: all right. thank uh, you, Mark. Yes,
0: uh, we want to thank everyone who has tuned in today. If you have any questions or, or comments about today's show, you can email us at radio at christendom.edu. For more information about how Christendom College is helping its students learn the truth, live the faith, and thrive, please visit our website at christendom.edu. We hope you'll join us again very soon as we continue to point towards some of the rich treasures that our faith and a liberal education can offer. We've spoken today about liberal knowledge, particularly in the study of history, which has value for its own sake. St. John Henry Newman made that clear. He also highlighted in many places the essential need to soar on two wings, those of reason and faith. St. John Paul II echoed this dynamic reality of man's purpose and calling in time. In his encyclical letter, Redemptor Hominis, he wrote that Jesus Christ is the sinner of the universe and of history. He further wrote that, quote, act of redemption marked the high point of the history of man within God's loving plan. God entered the history of humanity and as a man became an actor in that history, one of the thousands of millions of human beings, but at the same time unique. Through the incarnation, God gave human life the dimension that he intended man to have from the first beginning. He has granted that dimension definitively, in keeping with his eternal love and mercy, and he has granted it also with a bounty that enables us to repeat with amazement the words of the sacred liturgy, O happy fault, which gained us so great a redeemer. End of quote. With all of the often tragic twists and turns of the still unfolding story of mankind, may we never lose sight of the fact that the history of the world and our personal history and calling in that world is made intelligible by the one who is the author of it all, and who holds our vocation in a loving and personal way in the palm of his hand. We are never alone. Have a great day, and may God bless you.